Well, good morning, church. I'm Larry. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, my delight to get to open God's Word with you today. Um, we're going to get to John 7 here in just a moment, so if you want to go ahead and get your copy of Scripture and open to John 7, we'll get there in just a minute. This past week, um, 19 of our team from here at Radiant Bible Church had the privilege of being at the Great Commission Collective Annual Conference. It was held up in Ontario at uh, one of the GCC churches, um, Hope Bible Church, and uh, it was a privilege and a delight to get to be there this past week. You see a couple of pictures on the screen. Uh, I'll just give you a quick highlight of some of our time up there. We have some really gifted Bible preachers, Bible teachers and preachers and pastors in our fellowship of churches, and uh, we had the privilege of sitting under some great Bible teaching. There were some workshops that many of our team had the privilege of being a part of with different ministry emphases. Um, Crawford LaRitz, some of you will know that name. He was, he's a Bible teacher that's here in the U.S., uh, retired pastor from the Atlanta area. He was there as well, opened God's Word in both a, a main session and had um, some breakout workshops as well. So um, it was just a delight for us to get to be there. Um, first of all, as a team, uh, I would say as great as the content was, the relationships were the thing for us, both from our team getting to be together in a setting outside of here at Workday, and also the relationships we have with some of our uh, partner churches and certainly our international partners. You see one of the pictures has our, some of our international partners on there. So it was just a great time. Um, there was a theme of unashamed, unashamed of the gospel, unashamed integrity, ambition, preaching, unashamed care, and unashamed endurance. So I'm grateful how God worked in my own personal heart and life this past week. And uh, I'm sure in the hearts of our team members in fact, I'm hoping to take a little time this week and maybe just spend unpacking that and hearing from our other team members. But thank you for your generosity that allowed us to be there this week, and uh, it really was a great week for us to be away. Well, I read this uh, a few weeks ago uh, in anticipation of getting to preach today, and I just want to read it to you as we get ready to, to start this morning. It says, Pastor, you are the sower, not the seed. You are the steward, not the treasure. You carry the match, but the fire must come from above. To ignite hearts that burn white hot for God, we need the flaming power of the Holy Spirit. To walk forward in ministry ablaze for God's glory, we need the Spirit's fire to empower us and to sustain us. God, that's precisely what we beg you for this morning and ask you for as we open your word, reveal to us the things in it that you want us to know about you, what we need to do with it as we go out of here to live closer lives in love and devotion and passion for our Savior Jesus. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanna be faithful to call to your memory, just as Pastor Nate does almost every week, the key verses from the Gospel of John as we've been going through this series, and found in John 20, verses 30 and 31. I will admit, I don't quite have them committed to memory yet, but I'm getting there. So I'm encouraging the rest of us, hopefully maybe we can get these memorized before the, the series is ended. John 20, 30 to 31 says, now Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, I'm going to read our text from John chapter 7 here in just a moment. Um, if, you wanna, if you're already there, hopefully you are. But uh, John chapter 7 starts this way. It says, after this. Well, that begs to know what came before this. If we're talking about after this. And um, so what I'm going to do, I think it might be helpful at this stage in our series through the Gospel of John, just to do a very quick review. Skip a rock across the surface of the water on some of the things that have come before John chapter 7. So there's a map that's going to show up on the screen. Um, I found it helpful just to put context of geography with what we've been studying through the book of John. So maybe you can follow along and see some of these key places, as I mentioned, some of what's gone on through the book of John so far. Chapter 2. I'm going to start with chapter 2 because that's largely where John starts with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 says that uh, Jesus was in Galilee up north and specifically at Cana. And at a wedding, and he did what's recorded as his first public miracle there, turning water into wine. From Galilee, Jesus went down south to Jerusalem for Passover. And chapter 2 records that while he was there, Jesus cleansed the temple, moves on into chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and met him there. Jesus says, you must be born again. And then Jesus goes out into the Judean countryside. This map actually says the word Judah, Judea and Judah, same place, two different uh, time frames of word choices. But Jesus went out into the Judean countryside, interacted with John the Baptist's disciples there. We move on into chapter four. Jesus heads back north. The, the apostle John records that John went through, I'm sorry, Jesus went through Samaria not just out of convenience, but because he had a divine appointment to meet the woman at the well at Sychar there. Uh, John records that Jesus and his disciples stayed there two days, and then they went on up into uh, Galilee, went back to Cana, same place where he did the miracle of changing water into wine. While he was there, an official from Capernaum came to Jesus and said, heal my son. Jesus said, your faith has made him well. You can go back home. He healed his son from afar. And then we go into chapter 5. Jesus goes back south now to Jerusalem. By the way, um, sometimes scripture will say they went up to Jerusalem. We look at a map and think, but Jesus, Jerusalem was down from Galilee. Well, but Jerusalem was up in elevation. So for me, simple student, it was helpful for me to realize, oh, that's why it says they went up to Jerusalem when really we're looking at a map and they're going down. But Jesus went back to Jerusalem and um, while he was there, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And then the Apostle John records that Jesus taught at the temple. And then we enter into chapter 6. Jesus is now back in Galilee. John doesn't record the chronology or events on how he got from Jerusalem back into Galilee. But um, he's there. And the beginning of chapter 6 says, The crowd had gathered. They saw the works that Jesus did to the sick. We can only assume that he's healing the sick there. And then Jesus multiplies the loaves and fish to feed the multitude. Jesus walks on water. Jesus miraculously causes the disciples' boat to be at shore. And then 
Last week, we saw Jesus at the synagogue in Capernaum teaching, teaching on, I am the bread of life. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you can't be, you can't have life in my name. And the, the apostle John records that this was a teaching that many said, this is hard, who can listen to it? And then he records that after that, many turned away and stopped following Jesus. Jesus then laser focuses in on just the 12 disciples and said, are you gonna go away as well? Then of course, Peter's words, Lord, whom, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. So this leads us then to the beginning of chapter seven. So I'm gonna try to read this quickly. Follow along as I read chapter seven, verse one. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, that's the Jews generally, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse six, Jesus says to them, his brothers and sisters, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go on up to the feast. I am not yet going to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After this, Jesus remained in Galilee. Verse 10, but after this, his brothers had gone up, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also, Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And then verse 13, yet for fear of the Jewish religious leaders, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, the Jewish crowd, therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. <clears throat> if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is indeed the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. 
So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Well, I'm going to very quickly show you there's three distinct scenes in this text today. First, we have Jesus interacting with his brothers and sisters. And then we have Jesus, we have, the, we have the Jewish crowd, rather, that's gathered for the feast in Jerusalem before Jesus arrives. And then the third scene is we have Jesus showing up and teaching in the temple. And so what I'd like to do in our remaining time is really just kind of unpack this a little bit more and then Look at a few takeaways in summary uh, toward the end. So let's just step, step down through these scene by scene this morning, and uh, I'll go fairly, fairly quickly. First of all, you see um, verse 1, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go to Judea because the Jewish religious leaders were seeking to kill him. What a sad commentary on God's own people who knew the Messiah was coming, and yet they wanted to kill the very one who was the Messiah and then verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. What's the feast of booths? Well, the Jewish people had multiple booths throughout, or multiple feasts throughout the year. This particular feast, the feast of booths, sometimes also called the feast of tabernacles, was actually celebrated in the fall of the year, right about this time, September or October. It was to celebrate uh, both God's faithfulness to the Israelites as they had wanderings in the wilderness, and it was also to celebrate and be thankful to God for the harvest. If you want to know more about the Feast of Booths, you can go to Leviticus 23 or Exodus 23. Um, let me pause for just a second. I was going to make mention of this, and I'll make mention of it now. I'm a note taker. When I'm in church, I like to take notes. And I kind of like to know where we're going with notes. Well, I should have told you earlier, this text does not lend itself to a really hard outline. So if you're waiting patiently for that. It's not coming, okay? So just, I just give you the freedom as the Spirit leads you to write down memorable notes. That's what you need to write down. Toward the end, there will be a couple of outline points, and they'll be on the screen for you to take notes on, but I should have mentioned that earlier. Um, I'll mention it now, all right? So Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23 will give you a little bit more information on the Feast of Booths if you want to go there and look at that. And then it references in verse 3, it says, so his brothers. That can literally be translated his brothers and sisters. These are the very siblings of Jesus that we're looking at here in this verse. Also in verses 5 and 10, it's the same people when it says brothers, it's referring to Jesus' siblings. And then in verse 3, it also makes reference to the disciples 
that your disciples may see the works you're doing. That's not the 12 disciples here. This is just followers of Jesus, uh, general uh, learners uh, wanting to follow who Jesus was. So we're gonna come back to this paragraph in a few minutes, so I'm not gonna spend much time here for now. Let's go on to the next scene, and that is, uh, starts in verse 10. It's where the Jewish crowd has gathered for the feast in Jerusalem, and it's before Jesus shows up there. Um, it says in verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. I just wanna call a note to that for a second. Um, you look in verse eight and he says, you go up to the feast, I'm not yet going. Uh, and, then he, and then it says, uh, he went up, but not publicly, but in private. Jesus had every intention of going to the feast when he sent his brothers on ahead. His brothers had an idea for how they thought Jesus ought to present himself in the going to the feast. We're gonna look at that in a few minutes, but I just wanted to call that. Don't be confused by that. Jesus was not being deceptive in any way. He just wasn't gonna to go to the feast the way his brothers and sisters wanted him to go. Well, um, at the end of verse eight, Jesus says the reason why he wasn't gonna go up in that manner. He says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up. I'm not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. When Jesus talks about his time coming, he's referring to his time to lay down his life and that was not yet. And so we can see that Jesus was fully in control of his actions, but it was not time for him to go up. Um, Jesus was laser-focused on going to Jerusalem to accomplish his Father's will, his Father's will, which was to be reviled, to be lied about, to be humiliated, and, often, and, and eventually to offer up his life as a sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. That is not the way his brothers were hoping to encourage Jesus to go up. That's the reason he said, my time has not yet come. Well, if we go on in the text then, and it says in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? That was a similar attitude to what his siblings had. That group, that crowd that had assembled for the feast, they also knew about Jesus. They knew his reputation. They wanted to see him for the same miracles and what they could get from him as well. And so at least some of them were hoping Jesus would show up the same way his brothers and sisters wanted him to, Others, apparently not, by saying, no, he's leading the people astray. So now the third scene, then, is recorded in verses 14 through 36. And it says, about the middle of the feast, in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The feast was seven days long, so this was probably day three or maybe day four, when Jesus publicly appears in the temple and begins teaching. And it records that, teach, that Jesus taught with such accuracy and authority and insight that the Jewish crowd and probably even the Jewish religious leaders recognized, how can this man have this kind of knowledge and learning when he's never studied under a particular rabbi or rabbis in general? And so now we're gonna see, and these will be on the screen for you, really four things that Jesus establishes as he's teaching in the temple. The first thing we see in verse 16 is that Jesus establishes his knowledge. They question how he could be learned, and Jesus answers them. My teaching is not my own, 
but his who sent me. So right away, Jesus says, I'm not here just to teach what I think is good. I'm here to teach what my Father wants you to know from me. Then he goes on and establishes his authority to do so. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on just my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Again, Jesus not showing up just to say what he wants, but rather to reveal and put on display the glory of God the Father who sent him. And now in verse 19, Jesus goes in a bit of a different direction, and he actually aligns himself with the Mosaic law and kind of pulls the rug right out from under the Jewish people, both the leaders and the Jewish crowd. The Mosaic law is that which the people, and particularly Jewish leaders, sought so meticulously to keep. But Jesus directly calls them out and says they don't keep it. And he points out the irony that they want to kill him for the very thing that they're doing. He refers specifically back to the criticism he got from healing a man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And he summarily dismisses and dismantles their argument by pointing out that they break the law by performing circumcision on the eighth day, even when it might happen to fall on the Sabbath. So they break the law to keep the law. Jesus says, one small act of perfecting a human body was okay for the Jews and the Jewish leaders, but Jesus performing a miraculous healing of a man's entire body was worthy of a death sentence. What hypocrisy. And Jesus says so much in verse 24. Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Church family, I want to pause just for a second because as I studied through this, I paused and I thought, am I guilty of similar things sometimes? Do I sometimes second guess the motives? Do I look down at someone for a comment or an action or a habit that they may have that I either don't understand or don't agree with without knowing the motivation of that person's heart? We need to be very careful of that. Matthew 7 says, with the judgment that you judge is the judgment that you'll be judged by. And then Jesus goes on and says, you need to get the log out of your own eye before you ever think about taking the speck out of your brother or your sister's eye. You can only imagine that at a sharp, such a sharp rebuke that Jesus gave the people of saying you don't keep the law, that uh, they were not necessarily feeling so loved by Jesus at that moment. And they say, isn't this the guy they're seeking to kill? Immediately after they tell Jesus they had a demon because he said they were seeking to kill him. And right, and in light of the heavy-handedness that the Jewish leaders had on the people, the crowd takes great risk then in what they say in verse 26. Here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities the Jewish religious leaders really do know that this is the Christ. But of course, then they waffle right away back again and say, but can he really be the Messiah when we know where he comes from? And then they had this strange, confused conclusion that when the Messiah showed up, no one was gonna know where he came from. 
even though, if you look down in verse 42, it's not part of our text today, but it does shed light on this. 42 says, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So clearly they knew from Old Testament prophecy where the Messiah would come from, and yet they're concluding that can he really be the Messiah because we know where he comes from and when the Messiah shows up, we're not gonna know where he comes from. Well, to this, it prompts Jesus then to establish his origin when they're talking about where he comes from. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus proclaims as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He, he who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So Jesus establishes his origin. And then almost immediately in verse 31, they waffle again and say, yet many of the people believed in him. They say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And finally, in, we see Jesus establish his destiny. If you look at verses 33 through 36, we're not gonna read all those. But they basically, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna be here a little bit longer and then I'm gonna go away. They hear him speaking literally. He's projecting where he's gonna be killed, ascended, and go back to heaven. And they say, where in the world can this man go that we won't be able to find him? So we see through Jesus' teaching in the temple, he established his knowledge, his authority, his origin, and his destiny Again, all from the Father and to the Father, not Jesus making up all of this on his own. Although he's deity, he would have a full right to do so. He was under the authority and the submission to the Father's will. Well, note in verse 32 that it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. I like to call that the Jerusalem Brute Squad. The Pharisees dispatched the Jerusalem Brute Squad to try to go arrest Jesus. And the interesting thing to me is that John doesn't even acknowledge that. He just goes right on in his narrative. If you look at verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. There isn't even any evidence that there was a confrontation between those who went out to arrest Jesus. We see this throughout this whole text. Verse one, Jesus knew that they were seeking to kill him. In the, the scene with the Jews at the, in the crowd when he was teaching in the temple, they say, isn't the man, this is the man they're trying to kill. So there's clearly all of this going on where they're trying to seize Jesus. And yet, Jesus was untouchable until he determined that his time had come. Clearly, Jesus was in full command of his life, and it reinforces what we see. We're going to see this in a few weeks. John 10, verse 18 says, Jesus speaking, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus was untouchable. All right, so we've largely unpacked a lot of what's going on here. So what do we do with this? What do we take away from this today? Well, as we've seen through every week through our study in the book of John so far, the word belief is such a key message from the Apostle John. Sadly, what we see in today's text is unbelief. And we see unbelief in all three scenes. 
Clearly, the religious leaders didn't believe in Jesus. They wanted to kill him. Verse 1, they wanted to kill him. Verse 13, they oppressed the crowd from even talking about Jesus. Verse 25, the crowd acknowledges that the leaders want to kill him. Verse 30, they want to arrest him. And in 32, they actually send the brute squad to try to do so. Clearly, the religious leaders did not believe in Jesus. The Jewish people largely didn't believe in Jesus, or at least didn't know what to think about him, at the very least. We've seen how they waffled back and forth. Some said he was a good man. Others said he was leading people astray. They marveled at his knowledge and then said he had a demon. The authorities, did the, did the authorities really know that he was the Christ and weren't willing to admit it? And then, but we know where he comes from, so is he really the Messiah? They're all over the place. So clearly, Neither the religious leaders believed in Jesus. At least a lot of the crowd was confused about whether or not he was the Messiah or not. Some did believe. If you look at verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. But I want to zero in for just the last few minutes on the most surprising unbelief, to me anyway, that we see in this text today. And that is, Jesus' own siblings did not believe in Jesus. Look at verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers, and that could be interpreted brothers and sisters, believed in him. These are the people who grew up in the very same household with Jesus. Obviously, he was the oldest brother. All of their memories would have included Jesus. I can just tell you, I'm the youngest of four siblings. I can clearly tell you, none of my siblings were perfect. My oldest brother and the other two. And by the virtue of the fact that I know they weren't perfect, I kind of think I would have recognized if there was a perfect sibling living under my roof. I feel like that's the same with Jesus' siblings. It seems to me like they surely would have noticed something different about Jesus and that he truly was the Messiah. And yet, I think this only bears out to me what John 6, says. We just looked at it last Sunday. No one, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I have to conclude at this point that the Father had not done the miraculous divine and drawn his siblings to recognize that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Well, Jesus, his, his brothers say, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples, your followers, may also see the works you're doing. That's in verse 3. In verse 4, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. On the surface, it may appear that Jesus' siblings had really motive or, or noble motives and intentions for Jesus going to Jerusalem and to Judea and showing his works. It's not unlike what Pastor Nate revealed to us when he taught on the feeding of the 5,000. And immediately after that, Scripture says they sought by force to make Jesus king. It's because they recognize Jesus clearly has these divine powers to do miraculous things. He could, that means he could probably overthrow the religious leaders who were so oppressive and maybe even overthrow Rome. The, the brothers, Jesus' siblings, wanted Jesus to go public in a really big way. That was a way that they could live vicariously and, and get some notoriety and some notice for themselves by being his siblings. 
kind of ride his coattails, if you will. We've already looked at how very different Jesus' motivation was for going up to the feast, public or privately, not publicly. The bottom line for me is this. The brothers were lovers of the praise of men, not noticing and valuing the grace of God as presented in the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 14 reminds us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what they should have been focusing on and not the notoriety. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says, from his fullness, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Well, then he focuses on the timing. And if you look at verse 6, Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What Jesus is saying is, I am under a divine appointment timetable. You are not. You're free to do kind of when you want to go to Jerusalem and not. I'm constrained by following my father's timing. And then he says this, he says in verse seven, Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I wanna wanna key in just for the last couple of minutes now on this word hate and what Jesus is trying to teach here. First of all, he says the world. That word really implies it's the world's system of thinking and their world's values. The writer of the Gospel of John also wrote three letters at the end of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, several decades later. And in 1st John, the Apostle John writes this, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those are the things the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, those are the things that the disciples, or rather Jesus, not the disciples, but Jesus' siblings, that's what they desired for Jesus to usher in from them, for them, approval from the world and its values and its system of thinking. Even though the world hated Jesus for pointing out their errors and pointing out truth that they didn't want to embrace, yet the world had no reason to hate his brothers They just saw them, society and culture just saw his brothers as the same as them, and they were not threatened by his brothers. I took note of this, and I'll just pause on this for a moment. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus is attracted to people who believed in him and who were awed by him, not just his works, but by him as an individual. On the flip side, we see that Jesus repelled people who were offended and threatened by him and the truth that he did proclaim. But nowhere in the New Testament do we get the idea or see anything that Jesus was just pleasant. Nor should we make it our aim as believers in our world today, in our culture, who have a system of thinking and different values than we have that are based on God's word, nor should we make it our aim to just simply be pleasant in the world's system. 1 Peter 4 says this, don't be surprised when trouble comes, Christians. It's the norm for us. It's not the exception. In John 15, on the way, we're gonna see this in a few weeks too, on John 15, on the way after 
the Last Supper and before Jesus gets to the garden where he prays and is eventually arrested. Jesus says this. He told his disciples this. Verses 18 and 19 of John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. I chose you out of the world. And then just a bit later, in John 17, 14, Jesus actually prays those things from him to the Father on our behalf. Jesus, or Jesus says to God the Father, the world hates them. I've given them your word, but the world hates them. So we've seen clearly the religious leaders didn't believe in Jesus. The Jewish people were unsure at best, and even Jesus' own siblings didn't believe that he was the promised Messiah. So why is that such a big deal? Why am I camping on that so much this morning? I'm just going to use a few verses from John that we've already looked at through our study to say why that's such a big deal. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We see belief and life Associated. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Chapter 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then one of our key verses that we're trying to memorize, chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I have to believe that this room is filled with mostly believers here this morning. And you may be tempted to sit there and say, but I do believe. I have put my faith in Jesus, and therefore, I know I do have eternal life. As we close this morning, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll give you a minute just to find that, because I'd like us to look at it together, just two verses. The Apostle Paul, writing now about 20 years after John chapter 7, He's writing to a church that was now established and growing in the city of Corinth, which is about 800 miles to the northwest across the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem. These are believers that the Apostle Paul is writing to, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Take note. Paul says, I'd remind you of the gospel I preached and you received. Past tense. And then he says, the gospel in which you stand. Currently, right now, present tense. And then the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, future ongoing. Loved ones, I'm calling us not to look at faith as fire insurance. True saving faith 
is faith that is enduring faith that leads to eternal life. It's a deep, developing desire to know God and to enjoy being known by God. What's the primary means by which we do that? It's his word. Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to pay close attention to every reading of God's word, every preaching of God's word, every meditation on God's word, so that we hold fast to it and that it has an enduring faith that leads to eternal life. As we studied in Philippians 2 earlier this year, where, again, the Apostle Paul says, work out or live out your salvation. Let's not rest on past efforts, but live out our faith day by day. Be ever grateful, for sure, for what we have been saved from, punishment we deserve, but be ever pursuing of what we have been saved to, those things that God wants us to do for his glory. James, in the book of James, verse 218, James was written by one of these siblings that's being referenced here in John 7. At some point, for sure, God drew James to himself and he believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. James 2.18 says, I will show you my faith by my works. So where are you today? Are you like Jesus' siblings and want just enough association with Jesus to make you look good or what can benefit you as you go through life, but not too much? Are you like the crowd, waffling back and forth, not really sure? Maybe he's who he says he was, maybe he's not. Oh, I hope you're not hostile toward Jesus like the religious leaders were because Jesus was calling out known sin that you're unwilling to give up yet. Or do you have an ongoing, daily, enduring faith and belief in Jesus as you live out your salvation? Again, like Peter said in chapter six, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Father, I pray that your word is going out with power in this room at this moment and that your spirit is implanting into our hearts what it is you want us to know. God, I pray that you would indeed help us to develop a daily enduring faith. Help us to resist the temptation to simply get along in the world so that it's comfortable for us, but rather help us to acknowledge and see that we have to follow your teaching as revealed in your word without regard for the consequences or how difficult life might be. God, thank you for sparing us from the punishment we deserve. Reveal to us what you have saved us to and what you want us to accomplish with your Spirit's help. Spirit, we invite you now to do your work in our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name.